Okay, this is John Stepling. This is Aesthetic Resistance Podcast number 77. Uh, We have not met in um, a month to the day uh, since since the last podcast, so it's been a long break. Um, With me in uh, Sweden, the north of Sweden, Johan Edebo. Hi, Johan. Good evening. Uh, In India, and I don't know where you are, Varun, in Delhi or up in the mountains, but hi. In the hills. In the hills, good. Um, from Long Island, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. And in Toronto, uh, Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Here, Toronto. Hi. Toronto. Okay, what did I say? In Toronto. Um, okay, well, the greater <laughs> Toronto area. The greater Toronto area. Um, so uh, the first thing to mention is that uh, I took part, Johan was involved too, um, in the conference, sort of the, the pandemic stroke vaccine conference in Stockholm um, a week ago. Uh, was remarkable. I was one of the speakers, um, but, but uh, there were, I don't know how many, 12 or something. Um, uh, Dr. Mahorta, the ubiquitous Robert Malone, um, Jessica Rose, uh, Pierre Corey, and on and on and on. Uh, and it, it was it was amazing that it went off as well as it mm. did. There was a huge audience for it in a big hall. It was beautifully filmed. All of the lectures will be up on Rumble soon. The first half of day one is already up. Links will will be um, added uh, when, the, when the podcast goes up later tonight, I hope. Uh, and so, so that, was, that was quite something. And, and uh, the fact that it was filmed and that the quality is as good as it is, mm. is really important, I think, because I defy anybody to sit and watch all of these presentations um, and, and then and then defend yeah. um, Anthony Fauci and, and the governments of the West and uh, Gates. And I mean, because you just can't, it's irrefutable. Um, it's, it's just, I mean, in many ways, I mean, there were great lectures. Mahorta is very effective as a speaker. And a lot of these guys have, have given these lectures before. And, um, they have, you know, PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> it was very effective. In some ways, the most, for me, the most remarkable uh, presentation was actually Pierre Corey's. Mm. Uh, and, and that is because he tracked very comprehensively <clears throat> the government's intentional um, disinformation campaign about ivermectin and and vitamin D and everything else and 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 it it he had you know he had concrete um, examples and and it 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 just laid bare the the intentional disinformation from the government about all of this um, and and ivermectin in particular and and I was thinking about 
so many journalists and and kind of even people who were vaguely critical of the the, the pandemic protocols were making fun of ivermectin um and saying oh it's you know it's horse medication it's a veterinary medic you know don't take that that's you know whatever you think you know maybe if you don't want to be vaccinated that's fine but don't take a veterinary drug and it's nonsense it's not true and um so so you you pay special attention i think to corey's lecture it's um it's remarkably effective actually anyway so that will be up soon and um i came at the end of day one and and i kind of kept mine a bit shorter than i had intended because i think it was we had a very tired audience by that time it was a long day and uh I felt uh, brevity was perhaps the best policy, but I was still reasonably happy with with the whole thing and with what I did. And it was, but it was a remarkable, um, it was a remarkable uh, conference. Mainstream media avoided it. Uh, there was a lot of alternative press, people from Iceland and different parts of Sweden and so forth. Um, and it got me thinking, and that's a topic to, to discuss because a lot of people say it's too bad, we have to get mainstream media to cover it. Yes, I suppose, yes. And yet there is a danger in that because mainstream media is going to distort what they see and hear. That's, that's what they do. And in some ways it, it um, because I was reminded of what NRK, the two different documentaries they did here on conspiracy theory. Mm. Um, NRK is the Norwegian version of the BBC. And um, shameless, really irritating and, and um, manipulative um, um, hour-long shows that, uh, that just ridiculed anybody who would question you know, the, the prevailing narrative on this stuff. So, and not just about the pandemic, about, about other things as well. Anyway, okay. Let me, um, uh, Johan, let me. Sure, yeah, I can just go on. And, and you're exactly right, because mainstream media has these, uh, these structural constraints because of the, of the type of institution that it necessarily is. So, I mean, yeah, and we have to be conscious of those. But it was a great conference, and uh, it was, it was uh, I was surprised that we, we got it together because we, we started planning it, I think, in, in the end, at the end of November. So, I mean, it was no time frame whatsoever with almost no funding. And yeah, it's, it's kind of weird that it really got off the ground. So just to summarize, I think, I think most of the presentations were, were good, as you've already said. They were quite detailed. They were supported by convincing data. So, I mean, for the in in relation to to academic conferences, this was this was a kind of high level from my experience. But it had two main problems, which I think characterize the well the alternative research uh, uh, movement in general, because I think they were all sort of almost all most of them were myopic in a sense with with this highly specialized focus with not enough tying them together into this more comprehensive 
bigger picture. I think your perspective was the only real counterexample here, John, because the only other attempt at uh, deeper political analysis were, were basically sensationalistic and, and superficial, sometimes not very far from Alex Jones type stuff. And I think that's a that's a huge drawback. It's also, uh, yeah, it also characterizes the entire sort of movement in general. And, and also I, I, on the on the Corey lecture, I was surprised to find that, uh, and maybe Varun can talk about this, the, the, the the way in, in which ivermectin had been used in, in India and the the criticism from, from India in relation to the Western uh, repression of these sorts of treatments, that surprised me. And it surprised me how little I knew about this being in, in the context I am. Yeah, so yeah, that's my summary, basically, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think, I think what you say is, is correct. I mean, it was interesting. It was both um, a, a positive and a negative, in a sense, that that you had what were, um, you know, almost entirely, with the exception of me, um, doctors and scientists and researchers, and they were indeed very specialized and narrow. And and some of them, you know, were immunologists, and others were um, other things, and and um, they went into very detailed and um, um, footnoted, mm. uh, <clears throat> you know, information and data and studies and, and you know, um, um, Mahorta was very good because he's, he's the most familiar face, maybe more than Malone even, um, you know, he writes op-eds for the Guardian and whatnot. And, and so, so he, he was he, he was a guy who was familiar with and had experience with um, you know big media outlets and I tried to cover in my speech the history of very briefly of, of media consolidation and uh, the the way in which you know the 1996 uh, Federal Communications Act and the, the follow up in 2003 just this radical consolidation of of like 83 um, different companies down to six, you know, that there's the big six now, Google, Microsoft, Viacom, Disney, et cetera. And, and, that, and that that has allowed for um, this, this absolute control of message that, that, that you see. Um, so, so in a sense that was bad, but in another sense, the fact that, <clears throat> I mean, I would guess that the majority of presenters, not all of them, but probably the majority are relatively conservative and not particularly political. They're scientists, you know, they're, they're doctors. And uh, they were very careful to stay in their lane, as it were. And um, in a sense, that's good. In another sense, of course, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a problem, you know, uh, because the, the, when you, at the end of two days, because I talked to a lot of people at the end of two days, <clears throat> people were, were really impressed and kind of overwhelmed and they, they, they had learned so much stuff that they didn't know. And, um, 
and they were trying to process it and it there was this this overall feeling of unreality you know that how could this have taken place at on a scale like it did a global scale in which the world was shut down in a sense um and and it people were kind of crying out for a political perspective and and uh that's what has to happen next i think um so anyway that's but but i encourage people to watch the entire two days a long a lot of several hours worth of lectures um but but i think it's important and it's a great document to have you know so anyway okay um uh hiroyuki um are the so those are uh specialists uh doctors scientists and so on um do you feel um that they are optimistic about um how things are gonna be i mean you know within their field like i'm sure that they are uh you know uh persecuted they they know that the uh doctors are uh, fired and, uh, you know, all those things, censorship, uh, those things are happening. And uh, I'm sure they are um, concerned and sad and disturbed. And um, um, so, you know, did you feel like things are changing, you know, in, you know, well, in the immediate field, you know? Like, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Johan, do you want to answer first? And yeah, yeah, because I think this factors into what my my experience. So, so some of the of the Swedish doctors here, well, they're sort of like when you were fifteen years old and you heard a lecture on the World Bank or the the you know or the the monetary fund and and discovered that there are like these these huge structural injustices in the world and they hadn't really i mean so in some sense they 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 strike me as politically very naive and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's i mean it's it's symptomatic of of this specialization of this myopic specialization so so they so many of them just now discovers that there are these uh, Right, significant right. structural problems, and, and that I think renders them maybe too optimistic in relation to how well, you just need to get the information out, and everything's going to solve itself. Right. Well, there were two. There were two panels, um, one each day, and I moderated the panel on the second day, um, and and uh, the topic officially it got. <laughs> this topic changed as we were doing it, but the topic was, you know, where do we go now? What is to be done, and so forth. And and that's when this naive political naivete was exposed. I mean, people said things like, "Well, you know, trust your common sense," and uh, you know, I'm very optimistic that if, you know. I mean, there was no political program at all. People had no. Um, I think almost, I don't know if any of them had a real um, political uh, uh, understanding of, of class and, and um, you know, these structural injustices and the, 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 you know, the hegemony of the American empire and in, in even just things like <clears throat> media and so forth. That was, that was, that was surprising to me. And and I had expected there to be a 
a, a sort of more substantive um, um, response to that question. Uh, <clears throat> you know, and, and even people like Meryl Nass, who, who was excellent, I mean, her lecture was outstanding and she understood, you know, what, what <clears throat> the World Health Organization, CDC and all of these, you know, um, these organizations were about and she had a lot of information and she spoke about a global coup essentially um but she couldn't then tie that into a a a, a, a political analysis in any way um and <laughs> you know you wanted to say geez i wish you guys had read marx a little better you know um, uh, and, but, but again, you know, we're talking about in Mahorta and these people are relatively conservative thinkers politically. And, um, I, you know, I listen to this and I, I think back on the last three years and certainly all of us here are not surprised with what happened. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it was not, I mean, from the beginning, I think everybody on this podcast sitting here right now understood what was happening. It was pretty obvious, and yet I think for the majority of of these specialists, it, it was kind of shocking. They found it surprising that that things unfolded um, the way they did. And I remember Mahorta said, "Well, I even I don't think that you know Bill Gates or these people are you know even I don't think they're bad intentions. They don't have bad intentions." And when I spoke, I said, "Of course, Bill Gates has bad intentions." You know. With respect, um, of course he does. We have a, a, a billionaire class now, this half of 1% that has enormous disproportionate, like, you know, <clears throat> breathtaking amount of power and influence, and they wield it because otherwise, how would this have happened? And nobody talked about, with the exception of myself, the effects economically of the lockdowns you know that it was a retail apocalypse um as, as john bauer once said you know that it <clears throat> that it shuttered mom and pop stores across the uk across the united states museums it 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 wiped out um you know enormous independent um outlets for for culture and in, in you know, music, dance, theater, museums, everything was was horribly affected. And yet um, that that seemed outside the purview of of um, of almost all the speakers, really. Johan. Yeah, just very, very briefly, because may, maybe this quote unquote political naivete might not be a, a bad thing. I saw no leftists there. I met no organized anarchists of any sort there. Maybe they were there, but I mean, but I mean, because of the level of recuperation of the left, maybe you need this political beginner's mind to to start approaching these issues with a um, like a um, with a with an open mind in some sense. But maybe Varun, could you tell us about the the, the there was something on the ivermectin situation in India and some sort of death penalty hanging over a, a European or, or American official. Do you know anything about that? I don't know about the death penalty uh, on the official, but I know that uh, 
the government, a lot of state governments were giving out ivermectin for free initially. And then when they started talking about the vaccinations and importing steroids and things like this, then they made the sale of ivermectin illegal. So wow. <clears throat> then, yeah, well, there was a lot of young doctors who were actually prescribing ivermectin and telling people to have basically warm water and salt and gargle and just, you know, <clears throat> have, a, have a garlic tea and uh, ginger tea and stuff like that, you know? And there was a, a lot of people took ivermectin for a considerable amount of time over those one and a half years. Um, and I know a lot of people who were also sick who took that stuff and they got better. But there was, I mean, it was the same kind of propaganda which was being flooded on Indian media. It's exactly the same about the horse tranquilizer stuff don't take it, is this, is that. And so there was a lot of mistrust which was being created against a very cheap and available drug, essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, I, you know, again, uh, it, is, it is worth um, listening to all these lectures. Uh, Pierre Corey on, on the ivermectin story is, is pretty, you know, is a pretty remarkable uh, speech, actually, because <clears throat> uh, he just exposes the the you know the blatant dishonesty of of you know the medical profession, and and this this is another we can segue into kind of a another couple or three topics here. Um, there was <clears throat> one of the things I asked at the conference was, you know, in how were these decisions made? I mean, what were the mechanisms if we reverse engineer this story, as it were, you know, how do, <clears throat> who got a phone call from who uh, that said, you know, we need to have a meeting, there's going to be, you know, the, this is what we expect you to do because there's a global emergency, a health emergency and blah, blah, blah. Because I think it, it it would be important to to understand um, if you how far back you can trace that. I mean, who made the original call um, when 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 this you know World Health Organization declared that emergency um, that there is a pandemic? Uh, who was sitting there that arrived? at that conclusion, you know? I mean, we know, I'm saying this rhetorically because I know that, that um, this was probably almost certainly decided long before the announcement was made and, and there were a lot of things um, <clears throat> in place, but I think you have to look at, because a lot of people have said to me, but, but I know so many decent doctors and good doctors and they're telling me I should get a vaccination and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think it's important to look at the way in which doctors in general are compromised, um, the money they get indirectly through grants and funding and lecture tours and, and um, uh, uh, that, that their projects, other projects unrelated to the, you know, the health emergency, those projects, it's made clear by 
big pharmaceutical companies that we will pay for trials and studies and you will get um, a certain stipend if, you know, if, if you go along with what we're telling you here and weren't, you know, that these vaccines are good and blah, 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 blah. Um, it's, it's hard to believe that, that there are so many doctors who are, who are that um, morally bankrupt, but I, but I just think that's the nature of contemporary society, probably that, that this is, um, this is this is the way it works, and it works in all other fields as well. I mean, this is something that, and you know, I see here, Yuki and Johan both have their hand up. Um, my my sense lately, I'll throw this out and then I'll shut up for a minute. Um, I have this overwhelming sense of how surreal the world has become. Um, you know, I'm 71 and. And I look back and I think I'm not, I'm not insane. I remember when it was different, when things were not this um, unhinged and, and in, which, in which people were not embracing their own imprisonment. And, and mm. you know, we have these 15 minute cities now and all, and people are applauding it. And you just think, what is wrong with you? I mean, I don't understand. Part of me does not understand. Okay, Hiroyuki and then Johan and then Varun. So um, how do they uh, reason uh, um, about all those things they are, I mean, we are experiencing in terms of, um, you know, all the facts are wrong. We are getting those orders that, that uh, uh, doesn't make any sense at all. And, um, and do you have, uh, similar tendencies coming from different places. How do those doctors um, make sense out of those those things? Uh, what, what's your impression? Um, I'm I'm going to let Johan I mean, Rune answer first, and then I will. No, mm -hmm. I mean it's a great question. I mean, do they think like it, it's just greed of um, uh, corporations, something like that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but but I'm going to come back to it. Um, Johan and then Varun. Yeah, uh, that, that's a that's a great question. I think also uh, because you said earlier, John, that there's people are kind of crying out for for a coherent political analysis. I think many people share this experience of, of surreality that that things are are bizarre and chaotic, and you can't get your bearings and. I think that's the general impression. Uh, I mean, people don't have a, a, a set of explanations to choose from. They don't have a, a coherent framework to, to make sense of the entire situation. And that's the, the mood I get among the, among the audience, among the people there, among the, the general, well, in, in this general movement uh, in, in, on the macro level, so to speak. And I was also curious about this, uh, 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 this uh, because I, I've been thinking about these these last three years as perhaps the greatest opportunity to build uh, political consciousness since maybe the 1920s or something, and I, I've been curious about the situation in Canada since 
last spring Strucker protest situation deal and um, what is the what is the the do, do people still I mean is there a coherent cohesive uh, movement left there or is this is it as as disoriented as uh, the left in general has become is there this same clamor for for a political analysis in in, in that kind of movement as well uh, so maybe Corey can can respond to that later uh -huh. Yeah, I, go well. Go ahead, Corey, and then and then no, you through. go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. Johan always you... asks me the best things. <laughs> um, um, Varun. Yeah, I think I was just going to add that I think, <clears throat> given how much um, war and propaganda the collective has gone through in the last few decades, I think there has been a very deliberate. I mean, also I think it's a fallout of of some sort of psychological trauma which has desensitized the public to actually realize what is happening this is a kind of a it's a kind of a cognitive shutdown completely so you cannot analyze facts and and yeah. because i think on a on a global scale this kind of a this kind of a thing has never happened in our lifetimes right so compounded by all this continuous kind of um footage that you see of war everywhere all the time and militancy and terrorism and all of this stuff and then you have this hyper indulgence on the other side which is basically shutting down your your sensitivity to the world and i think that plays a really big part in why people are not able to analyze it properly yeah i i will just add briefly um uh you know i i want to try to talk to people uh, when, when the subject of the pandemic and the protocols and the vaccines, because increasingly there's skepticism about the vaccines. People don't want to take more boosters. Too many people are dying, too many people, too many heart attacks, too many, you know, all kinds of problems. Um, and then of course, the other major news story right now is the US NATO war against Russia, um, proxy war. Um, and people who, I know people who are incredibly skeptical about the vaccines, about the protocol, um, but who still think um, that Russia is an evil empire and an imperialist and they're a threat to Europe or something. And it's, it's, it, it speaks to the extraordinary amount of propaganda that has been um, unleashed by the U.S. and and its various organs of um, disinformation uh, over the last couple of years, and and uh, it's it's terrifying to me in a way. And I I just happened to be I was reading something about I guess it's nor I don't know. I mean everybody's sending all this weaponry to Ukraine. Um, it's a little misleading because a lot of the stuff they send um, is probably not ever really going to get there, number one. <clears throat> it'll be, you know, and if it does get there, it'll be um, um, taken by one of the various criminal cartels. And um, it's not likely to make it to the battlefield. But I just happened to be glancing at the number of fighter jets produced globally by different countries. The U.S. has four, I think, um, 
Russia has two, China has two, Sweden has um, a very important one that um, has, has been upgraded considerably. France has two, the UK has one, Germany has one. And, and these are planes that cost billions of dollars each. The amount of money involved in the defense industry is hard to wrap your head around. It is so, I mean, extraordinary that, that this industry is producing these incredibly expensive planes. And who are they selling them to? Well, they're selling them to, you know, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and India. India, oh, India's got a, a new fighter jet too. Um, you know, and and you 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 wonder what you know. There's no rational reason for a country like I don't know the Czech Republic to buy twenty seven new fighter jets from you know whoever they buy from the United States. What do they need them for? So they can eventually give them to Ukraine, I guess. I don't know, but. But we're not talking about, you know, a fleet of Toyota station wagons. Um, these are incredibly expensive, very technologically sophisticated. Most of the American, um, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, planes are, are, are so over-engineered technically that they are prone to breakage and and there's nobody in any of these countries that knows how to repair them. So, <clears throat> you know, that's a problem. Um, but it's, it's, I was reminded of a story I read once about the London Arms Fair, where you have all, you know, all these, you know, Boeing and Lockheed and all of these, you know, big companies, Saab and, and whatever, um, showing up and they stand in booths next to each other and, you know, there's Israeli buyers, potential buyers chatting with one booth as a Russian is talking to somebody next to him and an Egyptian next to him and a U.S. And it's, you know, these are countries that are <clears throat> openly at war sometimes, but it's all suspended in the name of, you know, this arms fair so they can, you know, purchase billions of dollars worth of weaponry and armaments. It's, it's stunning. It's just stunning when you think about it. That's that's part of the level of irrationality, and and it's very disturbing because um, part of this lack of political awareness we talk about is just when you get somebody to believe that the pandemic was a manufactured emergency um, and that the vaccines were were there to incur lifelong dependency to big pharma people will come out and talk about, you know, how plucky the Ukrainians are and Zelensky deserve, you know, and Jens Stoltenberg's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> another death of irony moment. And, and, you know, my heart sinks when I hear this, because I think, don't you understand the relationship here between these moving parts? You know, you can't separate American imperialism from NGOs, um, from hedge, you know, asset managers, hedge fund managers, Black, BlackRock and Vanguard. You can't separate any of that from the Pentagon, the CIA, MI6, um, et cetera, et cetera, the World Health Organization. They're all related, the World Economic Forum. They're all related. 
this that's the problem and it's enormously complicated and i understand as Varun just said why there is cognitive shutdown um because i'm tempted to myself to just think i'm just going to study chess from now on too you know it's like it's too hard um there's enough to learn about you know king's gambit that i don't have to i don't have to think about anything else it's just because it's it's exhausting it's exhausting okay johan and then and then corey maybe yeah, I can just very quiet. You, Corey, if if, uh, if it's okay with you, I mean, I, I can sure, sure. a question too. I mean, what do you think about the prospects of building political consciousness in, in, in from your point of view? Well, I think um, John said a couple of weeks ago, you know, that sort of the very foundation of the problem is the lack of political analysis in our movements, right? Especially now that we have the NGOs dominating um, all movements and all basically all forms of movements. I mean, if you guys remember, it wasn't that long ago, remember the stop the Keystone XL pipeline, mm. you know, that's a good example. And what people didn't realize is that the majority of that pipeline had already been built. So what they were actually speaking to was this tiny, was a smaller piece of it. The rest was already built and, but in people's heads, there was no pipeline at all. And then when that, um, you know, tons and tons of money poured into there and basically at the very same, same time, Warren Buffett built that huge rail dynasty, right? That's a great example of the function that they serve. And that's um, uh, the reason why literally trillions of dollars are bundled into that nonprofit industrial complex, because as we talk about, it's such a huge part of this machine, which operates as one. I, against, you know, working class, but I wanted to uh, mention something near the end of uh, one of the many dozens of articles that we share on um, Telegram with each other. This was near the bottom, and um, I got to the bottom of one of them. I can't read them all, but it was, it wasn't a particularly good article. I don't really remember much about it, except for this little part, which I want to read to get to what you're talking about, Johan. And they're talking about the term activatism, um, and then these, and they're just to describe the ceaseless but largely directionless and ultimately futile efforts of the left, as they saw them. The term was partly borrowed from Adorno's critique of the Frankfurt University student protesters in 1968, and then it goes on to to say he um, Adorno had described the German students' actionism which he actually said, that was the word, um, which he said was, quote, embraced by people who imagine themselves to be radical agitators, but whose thoughtless compulsion mirrors the pragmatic in empiricism, I hope I'm saying that right, of the dominant culture. Adorno was angered by the way this movement refused to reflect on its own impotence. And I think, you know, that was prior to 1969. So I think that's pretty yeah. profound. And I wonder what he would you know, what he would say today, as I also wonder what lots of those, you know, great thinkers would say today, especially what we've witnessed over the past three years. Um, I mean, it has been, that's been the most amazing thing to me, what John said, not so much of what we saw, I don't think it was unexpected, what we just have went through and what we continue to see. I think what was unexpected was the uptake 
of it, right? Especially what we considered, um, you know, left movement, radical left movement. There is quite a lot of uptake, though that's really more, I guess I'm talking about a liberal, um, the liberal movement um, being a huge part of that mechanism to make it, you know, politically correct and everything else. But it reminds me of um, quite a long time ago, you know, when we used to talk about sweatshops and we used to talk about, you know, exploitation through bananas and talked about fair trade and, you know, sneakers and all of that stuff and phones, the Colton and the phones. And, you know, a long, 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 long time ago, I thought once people would understand where all this came, stuff came from in the capitalist system that you know, but based on exploitation that it would leave, you know, when enough people understood it, it would leave such a bad taste in people's mouths collectively that it would sort of dampen the appetite for these things. But now that we see, you know, this huge push for green energy, even though it's so well documented, the harm that this is doing and will do on our planet, I can see that it doesn't matter. You know, like that's sort of the bottom line. People are no longer bothered, you know, by the plight of our, you know, brothers and sisters in the global south. Even during COVID, when we saw this huge wave of deaths in Africa and global south in India, not from COVID, but from the lockdowns and the lack of health systems, right? All locked up. Um, and, and people really didn't care here in the West. You know, they really no, didn't care. Um, well, I, yeah, I can, yeah, everybody's no. hand is is going up. No, I I just wanted to to add that that um, I read an article the other day, <clears throat> and I think I shared it with you guys on Telegram, uh, uh, criticizing green uh, policies as being not green, and the writer was reasonably accurate describing, you know. Um, rare earth minerals, that these things are not sustainable, smartphone production is not, but he never once mentioned the military. And, and, you know, this was the week in which all these European countries, EU countries promised tank deliveries and the US to Ukraine. And these are, well, many of them are old, crappy, um, out of date tanks, but a number of them, in theory, Germany is sending um, these new, the new generation of Leopard tank, and the fuel consumption for these tanks is almost incomprehensible. I mean, it it would render the entire Ukrainian army's efforts um, to be directed at fuel lines and 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 you know um, supply lines for fuel because uh, because the amount these tanks consume is is just astronomical. It's it's hard to comprehend. But nobody ever mentions the military. Um, I it's just a strange thing. And this writer on this article, I mean, he was very good about a lot of things, but he was guilty too of just a stunning political naivete, immaturity politically. He didn't understand um, the, the, the function of American imperialism, the function of this empire, the, the hegemony, economic hegemony that, that, you know, the Bretton Woods institutions and world economic, the, the, you know, the, the crippling debt 
that is imposed on the global south and um, none of that seems to I, it, it's like there's been a complete amnesia, you know, has taken over um, an entire generation regards all of this stuff. Okay, Varun and, and then Johan. Maybe I think, I mean, if the change of language were to be considered, I think if it would, if, if we were to call it the war industry instead of the defense industry, a lot of things would change. Because I, I think defensive, the, 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 the basic idea of a tribe is to defend its hunting ground, right? And that's kind of translated into this national boundary stuff. And so I think psychologically that works as a justification for letting it go on and on. But if you call it the war industry, it looks like something else entirely. But um, I also wanted to add to what Corey was saying earlier, I think about um, how dangerous mass media has become is that it has become a voice which neutralizes public action against atrocities, right? And compounded by this, the, the NGO complex that's working in tandem with the billionaires and the corporations, that's a really dangerous game that we are set up against, right? So it's, it's kind of taking away the voice of the public on one hand and providing solutions simultaneously on the other hand so people become completely powerless they have nothing to do except be only kind of passive consumers that's all that's left for them to do <clears throat> well it's remarkable that i was reading another article about <clears throat> several towns in england are uh, uh floating the idea of these 15 minute cities meaning that there will be you know, acute restrictions on travel um, in any direction where that would extend more than 15 minutes that, that, you know, they're trying to provide limit travel. And this is, this is in theory, because, you know, a global warming, I guess, or something. Um, it's absurd when you sit down and think about it. But what is shocking and depressing is that lots of people support this think this is a good thing. And here in Norway, I read an article about Oslo is thinking of ultimately moving toward banning cars from the city of Oslo. Now, this is not workable. This is impossible. You can't do that. I mean, the chaos that would ensue from this. So it will never happen, I can guarantee you. But, but lots of people thought that was, you know, yeah, okay, it'll be so nice. There'll be no car. I mean, they don't think, what do you, right. you know, I mean, they just, the implications are, are never thought about what that would do. You have a family of three or four with small kids. What do you do with them? You put them on public transportation to go into, uh, no, you would never go into Oslo um, that just for openers, you know. Um, okay, Johan. Uh, yeah, and it's exactly as you say, but in the, the rebranding of the, the military into defense is obviously euphemistic and a part of the psychological warfare on a, on a broader front. I, we have this uh, commemorative plaque from when my grandfather was drafted during, during the Second World War, which uh, mentions the, the Svenska Krigsmakten, which literally means like the Swedish war power. And then they rebranded it to the, the defense, of course. Uh, I, I also, on, in connection to what Corey said um, on the, uh, the effects of the lockdowns, I was wondering if, if any of you have any numbers on 
lives lost due to the sanctions against Russia. Oh, and that also goes out to, to any of our listeners. I mean, if you have these numbers, I would be really interested in looking at them. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think what's happening just very quickly in terms of the NATO war uh, effort is that um, Russia has won and everybody's worried, I think, about how the U.S. will react, how, how the U.S. will sell the fact that they've essentially lost. And what's interesting is um, the BBC, the BBC is the most shameless propagandizing um, entity in the world. It just, just the worst. And so, but, but not just them. I mean, you can read stuff online every day um, about how clever and resilient Ukraine has been and never, never a word about, you know, the massive casualties suffered and, and the fact that they've won nothing and had no success and that utterly, I mean, it's interesting because Bill Gates the other day commented about how corrupt Ukraine was. And I thought, he probably had gotten his med dosage mixed up that day that he would say such a thing. But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, I've never seen such open lying from, from Western media on a, any topic ever as, as this conflict with Russia. Mm. Never, I've never seen anything like it because the whole issue now is how the U.S. will save face um, because, because sure. you know, Ukraine is 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 defunct um, essentially, and Zelensky's probably warming up his night time talk show uh, opening monologue already because um, um, he's he's essentially historical already. Um, okay. Anyway, I just wanted to add that. Uh, Johan. Sure. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the fact that that any sort of, of sober assessment of the situation that even even calls for, for peace negotiations get lambasted as Russian propaganda. I mean, it's, it's the perfect example of this lack of, of thinking like two steps ahead you've mentioned and, and of the level of, of propaganda directed against the, the contemporary Western public. I also, I think what you said earlier, Varun, on, on the desensitization issue, I think that's extremely important in relation to all of this. And I have a, a few reflections that which connect to this and which also tie back to the aesthetic resistance theme of the entire podcast, if, if you give me a minute or two. Um, <laughs> because I, I, yeah. I saw this op-ed in, 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 the, in the Swedish, the biggest Swedish daily, and, and this editorial, it lauded infidelity, you know, basically exemplifying a childish hedonism of, of a very verbal five-year-old or something with the argument that, you know, life is short, so we should just satisfy our urges and, and cravings with, with reckless abandon. And I think it's all the worse because the author here, she specifically speaks of infidelity rather than just free love or open relationships or what have you. So you're dealing with an expression of a sort of ethics where promises and oaths are not to be kept, where, where contracts can be arbitrarily disregarded if, if one of those involved just feel like it. Basically ethical nihilism, if you, if you reflect on it. And if you try that out, out in practice, I mean, I, I don't think that this author would, would like the, the society that you get. So if you just crack open 
like any of the classics, Anna Karenina, Plato's Republic, or even Machiavelli's To the Prince, you'll find that the merits and drawbacks of exactly, exactly this kind of position is clearly explored in minute detail. And what I'm getting at here is we're not just seeing a, a loss of critical thinking in general, but it's also this, this loss of connection with the intellectual and moral roots of, of culture. And, and this same phenomenon, I think, is also the paramount problem with, with the left and its state today, because it's been severed from the roots, almost entirely reduced to a brand, to a sort of lifestyle identification commodity, a group identity, which, which says that it would re reduces to derision and antipathy directed against a certain set of targets. We're these guys, we don't like those guys, and, and that's the end of it. And that is political leftism today, because, yeah. Yeah. That's my rant. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I mean, um, I, I have written about this a few times and mentioned it a few times, that, uh, <clears throat> I mean, the, the left, the left's response to COVID, the health emergency has, has been kind of shocking, and and uh, uh, the, the the Trotskyists at the um, WSWS is it um, World Socialist Webpage, um, you know, who do great research. I don't like Trotskyists, but you know they've done great articles, great research. They're they're very reliable in many ways, but they've been just just stunningly stupid about this the COVID mm -hmm. thing um yeah. other other I mean we could list a whole bunch of people you know um um you know people who I have in the past respected and and um had great admiration for on some levels have have just gotten this so wrong and Christian Parenti's article is still the best um summation of, yeah. of the problem I think and I'll Put that in the links to, to this podcast mm. but um yeah there's something about uh, about and this goes back to adorno's um anger at at this activism that doesn't recognize its own powerlessness um that's very relevant to um to the left today who who just sort of spend their time policing social media um and and smearing other leftists, and it's all very kind of cliquish and tribal and idiotic, and um, and the opposite of what what you know they love to call each other comrade, um, and it's the least comradely behavior imaginable. Um, and it's like a, a giant expulsion committee that um, goes around smearing other other people that should be their allies. Um, there's no educational. Um, project involved at all. I was thinking about the Black Panthers recently. You know, what they did was concrete. They educated the community, they fed the community, and they tried to protect the community from the, you know, the police, Gestapo, occupational army, whatever you want to call it. It was all very concrete. The theory was very good. It was debated. It was openly discussed, and that's that's the model that seems to be lacking today. I I I it's it causes me enormous um, grief 
in a sense, because along with the erosion of culture, and they go hand in hand, um, the, the attack on the arts, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's tragic, really. Um, Varun. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, manufactured obsolescence in objects, but I think that has dripped into um, living philosophy, political ideology, as well as how people treat each other. Because I think the throwaway culture that was introduced in the late 60s, that is now a template with which social media works and people are seeing other people as um, objects to be consumed and that kind of it changes how the world functions with itself and there is no like we've spoken before that yeah. that kind of compromises the relationality the aspects of actually having sense of another being whether it's a human being or a living being or the planet and so on and so forth that it gets shuttered off completely because now everything becomes dispensable because everything is controlled by capital. So it's only on supply chains. Everything is on a supply chain now. So you can pick and yeah. choose. And it's so blinkered, the approaches. And like you've written in, in your, uh, you've, hint, you've talked about this in your new blog post as well, I think, is that the, the perspective with which the individual is looking at its context and its life is so narrowed down, so terribly narrowed yeah. down, that yeah. there cannot be any other context except for the indulgences that have been given to it by the establishment you know yeah, so, yeah. Um, no i really <clears throat> excellent points i think um corey well just sort of um following on what Varun said about the throwaway culture and just about earlier on um telegram i had commented how i i really do believe that capitalism is making people insane um, you know, that lack of critical thinking that we're always talking about. And I, I just wanted to mention, because I thought of this a couple of weeks ago, we had this great big bag of loose Christmas paper in the garage that I brought in. And, you know, I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? Everyone was over at my house, even though we say you don't buy anything, people still do. Um, I mean, it's fun, right? To give kids like little gifts, especially if they're handmade from craft markets and that type of thing. Um, anyway, there's this big clear bag of this rat. So I know it can't be recycled. So then I'm like, oh, I wonder if you can burn this wrapping paper. I look up, no, no, you can't, definitely can't burn it. It's all shiny, you know, stuff all over it. You can't burn it. So it's like, okay, what do you do with this? So I, you know, crushed it all down. I fit it, smushed it into like a, you know, grocery bag full, tied it so it can't come out. But I looked up, I looked up um, how much of that paper there is. And in the US alone, it's almost 5 million pounds of wrapping paper a year right? Um, it, wow. It's just garbage. And then in Canada, it's another, what is it, 500,000 tons. I mean, imagine what it is globally. So that's one thing that we could just tomorrow cut out, right? Like we talk yeah. about climate emergency, we talk about all these problems. Well, that's one thing we definitely don't need it. You look at it for one minute, tear it off and throw it out. Um, so why are we making that? Like what, you know, that's, I think if we start looking at things like that, um, separating things into um, needs, right, versus wants and whims and, and that type of thing. And it's just common sense. It's not that complicated. And you know what? Just make paper without all the stuff on it, without the chemicals in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Without all, yeah. all that color, all that color and glitter and all the other stuff that goes in it. 
And I mean, okay, that's just one thing and it's nothing compared to militarism, right? And, and we're not talking about dismantling the capitalist system, but we're looking at technology to solve all these problems and all we're doing is creating so much more garbage, you know, and it's all again, planned obsolescence, including the windmills, the solar panels, like we've talked about, they all have 20 year timeframes on them. Then they're, you know, throw them out, get new ones. And this is such a huge yeah. problem. And it's just like, yeah. no one yeah. even looks at it. Well, I've said before that <clears throat> the packaging industry is, is like the third largest industry in the world and they keep a very low profile and nobody ever talks about them. Um, you know, look at food packaging. Uh, you know, you go to the grocery store and you buy what are like four tablespoons full of yogurt and it's in, a, you know, um, a plastic container that then is placed in sort of a cardboard container and, and for four bites of yogurt, you know? Um, it's so irrational. It's such madness. Um, anyway, Johan Brew. Yeah, we're, we're a civilization of pornography and packaging, basically. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I, I think the conference's focus was disappointing, as I've already said, because the, the political, political analysis was, was either immature and, and superficial, or it was absent. And I think this controversy regarding Stuckelberger's uh, presentation and, and behavior is a case in point, because in one sense, I don't think it really matters if there, if there was like graphene or toxic adjuvants in the shots, because it's perfectly sufficient that they were useless, foisted upon a public deliberately scared out of its wits, and that the COVID years, that they saw history's greatest significant wealth transfer from the working classes and upward, but because that all by itself should be enough for people to break out the torches and pitchforks if you just give them a map to properly navigate the world, but they don't have this map. People generally don't have the complexity of experience that provide a stable ethical foundation to perceive the excesses and injustices of, of the current social order as such. These, these things right. are rather experiences just the way things are shitty as that may be. Well, I yeah. mean, but, but, but this is, this is, I mean, look at, I mean, there's a dozen examples I can think of that express what you just said. Um, steroids, um, uh, steroid use by professional athletes hmm. um, and who gets blamed? The athletes get blamed. <sighs> Um, usually poor kids who are desperate to make money, have a career, so they take performance-enhancing drugs because everybody else does, and it's true, everybody does. You go to the Olympics, you look at, look at every athlete, nearly every sport, you know, maybe not canoeing, I don't know, <laughs> but pretty much every sport, they take steroids, human growth hormone, you know, uh, there's a dozen like blood thinners, all kinds of stuff. Um, the medical use, I've said this before, but the medical uses for anabolic steroids are very limited, shrinking all the time, burn victims, short kids, a couple of other things. And yet, big pharmaceutical companies make massive amounts of steroids, manufacture massive amounts that sit in big warehouses. Why? Why are they manufacturing these massive amounts of steroids for a very limited, for very limited medical purposes. Well, because they know it goes into the black market that athletes use them and spend a lot of money to do it. 
but do pharmaceutical companies ever get blamed for this? No, no, the athletes are blamed for it um, because people have, are politically immature. They can't even think that, that far backward to understand that, that production, the social you know, organization of society, how you know, production affects every, I mean, the, this is like basic marks, right? But they are missing that. They, they don't have that. So it's easier to blame um, poor minority kids usually for using steroids and, and you know, oh, he's cheating, he's a cheater. Um, it just always pisses me off endlessly. Okay, Corey, here are you, Pivaru. Well, yeah, I just think, you know, as long as we have a, a economic system that serves markets instead of people, um, we're going to continue to devolve, you know, um, in that language thing that Rune, I believe, mentioned earlier, you know, imagine if we still called MPs and, and the like public servants, right? I don't know if what could happen would would have happened you know really like if you looked at them like public servants not servants of world economic forum and deloitte and mckinsey um the commonwealth but public servants serving the citizenry um you know it, i i don't know if they could have gotten away with it imagine if we had a campaign instead of build back better if it was called build capitalism back better which is what it, you know, or yeah. save capitalism, right? Uh, if they went with that, I, I don't know if it could have, you know, succeeded getting all that support and it basically being just a blip in the radar, people not questioning it. So uh, again, language is so imperative. I think it's, <clears throat> I'm just going to say one thing, and I didn't hear Yuki, because I think that's all exactly right. But I will add that, and I said this in, in one of the interviews I did with a paper in Sweden and in Stockholm, you know, there were protests against COVID all over Europe, huge protests. People were skeptical. People knew the lockdowns were, were economically destroying their lives um, and, and they were angry about it, but the media never covered it. So, a lot of people in other places didn't know, you know, that there were thousands, tens of thousands of people on the streets of Prague. They didn't know that. And they felt more, you know, media has a stranglehold on information and, and they control it. And that's mm -hmm. the message. And um, that, that if you think outside the box here, you are a conspiracy theorist, you're a crackpot, you're a lunatic, you're a Trump supporter. Um, and ergo, you shouldn't be listened to. It's very powerful. It's very hard to break that, that the grip that media has today on, on information. Hiroyuki? I think it's, it's, uh, it's really true that the, uh, uh, the basic um, principles uh, put out by Marx is um, totally uh, important and um, um, it, it's sort of like um, um, uh, mind-boggling. It, it's it's. I mean, um, it is uh, exploitation and subjugation uh, happens through accumulation of wealth, 
but another thing is that um, the the products are shaped according to the uh, profit uh, mode, and uh, we as uh, people are also commodities mm. as a workforces, and also um, in many occasions we function as uh, commodities, and that explains a lot of things. Um, dumbing down of the people, people becoming like AI, you know, if you want to sell AI, uh, people need to be like AI, you know, and <laughs> it's yeah. true. It's no, I, I said the other day, people are becoming, androids are not becoming like people, people are becoming like androids. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it's, it's, and, it's, but it's totally. so true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, so many other examples. Um, uh, erosion of the the culture uh, we just talked about, uh, and um, um, all those all those things, and also activists uh, picking on each other, destroying each other. Um, all those things can be explained by this um, commodities being shaped to fit this um, um, structure. You know. Yeah, so it's, no, it's true. It's, you know, reification was one of Marx's greatest concepts. And I think it was, I forget who said this, Paul Piconin, I don't remember, but he said, reification is where you treat your friends like appliances and your appliances like friends. And that's, you know, in one way, that's the basis of capitalism. Mm. It's, it, it just, you know, people are, your humans are disposable and and i people view the world as shoppers they shop for opinions they shop for morale morality for for ethical positions it's but it's all shopping and and nothing is organically learned anymore i feel i don't know um johan then varun sure yeah and to to continue on this this note I think that rebuilding this ethical foundation is entirely crucial for restoring political perception away from, from simplistic stereotyping. I think it is absolutely necessary for, for the transition from the, the basic experience of this is shitty and I don't like it to the conclusion that this is objectively wrong and should be fought until death or victory. Because otherwise Marxism, it, it, kind of just gives you the bare fact that surplus value is extracted from from the worker and i think you need someone like like aquinas or, or hugo grotius to to emphasize that this is also actually evil i think that's a right. crucial right. distinction right no i think it's really, really well i mean yeah i i completely agree and i'll comment on that in a minute Varun. yeah i was just gonna go back to the the wrapping paper example or that Corey was, <laughs> but I mean, it ties up into kind of a handful of people who decide that they want to be mass manufacturers and they need to create a market for this. That means that a child in school, when it has the, has the simple dream of becoming somebody who makes paper when they grow up, all kinds of paper, that kind of a dream is immediately kind of killed because it has no you have to go and join a corporation for that mm. you can't go and join a cottage industry for that because it's not going to give you mm. the livelihood that you think you deserve right like so that's the conundrum of the modern individual is how to have the creative instinct uh, kept alive while you fit into this kind of a 
hyper-consumerist paradigm mm. where every, every single individual is facing the market. It is not facing the other individual at all, right? So that's mm. that, that kind of infiltration is so deep and it's lasted since the early 1900s when a bunch of people got together and invented all these industries that mass production has taken over everything. Now, mass culture is mass-produced. Yeah. Philosophy is mass-produced. Um, you can name anything. Everything is being mass-produced. So there is no nuance. There is no individuality. There is no art in that sense. <clears throat> within well, you know, that's true. And it reminds me of something else that, that I wanted to touch on just very quickly because our friend Rob Snyder sent this article <clears throat> about um you know these these programs ai programs and there have been a number of them that that you can use to to create research papers or doctoral theses or something and they just produce gibberish essentially but even many peer-reviewed medical journals and 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 scientific journals have <laughs> published them because the peer review process and template that model is doesn't work anymore because nobody takes the time to actually read anything because there's too much junk. The stuff, you know, the they're just useless papers, even ones that are actually authored by human beings. Most of it is pointless and repetitive and and it's just, you know, a means to career advancement and, you know. But what's extraordinary is that a number of these papers authored by this AI program, one of the new ones, um, actually made it into publication. And, and you know, um, in, in, you know, prestigious journals, not, not fringe journals. And as one critic said, look, all you have to do is read the first paragraph. If you, you know, if you're even remotely knowledgeable about this field, and even if you're not, you're just literate, you know that this is gibberish. It doesn't make sense. And these papers referred to imaginary fake studies. You know, the footnotes were just invented out of whole cloth. And nobody noticed this, nobody complained. And I think what's even more interesting is I have a feeling nobody cares either. You know, they'll just go, yeah, go ahead, who cares? So it's, a, yeah, so it's an AI program. So it's a human being, big difference, you know, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Yeah. People care so little about anything ethical or moral anymore, it seems like. I, I mean, I don't know, Varun. <laughs> Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's one of the biggest symptoms of the self-referential yeah. um, spectacle, right? That Guy Debord, when he talks about the spectacle, that is the trap, is that there is no exit out of this kind of hyper-real overproduction of useless content that actually leads nowhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there is no trajectory, like Johan was saying before, that there is no map for anybody that that is, that that intends to walk can walk. There is no trajectory anymore. And in that sense, like the, the steps that you can take for realizing whether it's art or cinema or poetry or whatever, like any anything that is outside of the paradigm that has already been set is almost impossible because now they've all, I mean, I think the establishment has also very 
very consistently over time sucked all the all the support systems out from mm -hmm. under under that bedrock entirely like it's gone the money yeah. is gone yeah. the support systems are gone all of that is gone so yeah it's quite a scary place if you look at it like that I think. yeah you know it's it's um <clears throat> the other i was thinking today about you know i used to my life was theater really i i did theater for years and years and years decades and decades and i loved it and um it it, it was a profound relationship i had with theater i wrote about theater the philosophic implications of theater the importance of of you know the the memorized text speech spoken out loud in a kind of ceremonial space and on and on and, on. and it was never when i first started with all the people that you know taught me and with mednick and sam shepherd and irene forness and all these people it was nobody thought in terms of a commodity that the play mattered. What mattered was this process, this investigation, this kind of journey, spiritual journey that was theater. And people always ask me, do you, I, you know, I've lost half the plays I wrote because it just didn't matter to me. I didn't mm -hmm. think of them as important. What mattered was the next play. You know? And, you know, probably I should have paid more attention. But, but the point is that it was part of, you weren't writing a play to have a, a commercial success. That didn't enter into it. It was something else that was part of a, a cultural dynamic, a relationship with, with an abstract audience and a real audience, both. And, and the culture, when I speak of this cultural shift that has occurred over 40 years, this is what I mean. That you can't do that now because there, it's impossible to have that relationship anymore with an audience. That audience is gone. That's that's the biggest tragedy in art right now. Because it's not just theater, even it's painting, it's everything else. Is that is that the audience has shrunk? Yeah, an informed, committed audience has shrunk to almost non-existence, and that's what decadence means i think and we are in a profoundly decadent era um and or even i think it's also that the, the, the let's say that the artist's relationship with the form has also been appropriated in that sense of course in the sense yeah. that, right like so now it's being looked at from a commercial angle not as a communicative mm -hmm. angle Right? Like, so there is no yeah, better, sure. there is no like solid philosophy that you're trying to communicate. It's just that you need to fit something in there so that it reaches a lot of public and you get commercial success. That's what's happening now, I think. Yeah. Largely. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> go on. yeah. Johan. Yeah, but I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, to, to continue with uh, on what you said, Varuna, I. I mean, art, communication, ethics are commodified. Uh, ethics, especially, I think, now are either predicated upon the, the satisfaction of urges, as I exemplified, or the fulfillment of desires and being true to oneself within the framework of consumer society, or they're kind of condensed into this, these 
cookie cutter cartoon stereotypes of spectacular evil versus the good and virtuous capitalist social order. And, and this appropriates people's conscience and sense of justice. They're being channeled into and reduced to these preordained patterns of, of, of experiential moral indignation in, in opposition to what I would call prudent moral reasoning. And, and I think the only cure here is what you talked about. I think the only cure is art, religion, love, friendship, and playfulness. I think all of these things are the foundations of meaning that fuels political resistance. Yeah, but see, but I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's really true. And I'm just going to add that, that um, art is so badly taught today. There are no good critics. There's nobody writing. There's very few. I mean, the la very last of the great, you know, I'm, I think in terms of theater, Honke is still alive, but, you know, Pinder is dead and Heiner Mueller is dead and Herbert Blau is dead and on and on and um the the tragedy because people talk about well you you know it's impossible to write tragedy in the contemporary world well yes and no and that's too complicated for this podcast but but you know if you if you go back and you look at like no theater japanese no theater which doesn't really exist in a living form anymore it's become kind of folkloric um, like Kathakali in, in India. And, but, but nobody, the, it, and this was true of Greek tragedy, it was less the text than it was the recitation of this ritual text. Everybody knew the story. Everybody knows the stories. That's not what's important. What's important is this whole other complex and profound dynamic of a figure on stage reciting you know a memorized text and and the the relationship with a living audience and all of these things have almost been lost now i i feel like pretty much it's over that's lost there's something else will have to be invented um to to a new organic whole new um model for um for what used to be called art because i think i think the, the old forms have been destroyed they've been killed um Rune? yeah as a, i mean just playing on the language here a little bit but the word art itself is also um can also mean as a verb to be as a being so mm -hmm. if you live if we're living in a in a in a global culture or, which is continuously obsessively looking at what the future is going to bring there is no being and when there is no being there cannot be any analysis of what is it that is being and how is it being at the moment so that's in, in the sense that that's quite interesting for me to look at from that angle um <clears throat> i just watched a Bill Moyers, Bill Moyers of all people, interview with Robert Bly that somebody sent me. I had seen it before years ago. And Bly was 80 when this was recorded. Um, and, and it's extraordinary. He's talking about the Islamic ecstatic poets and Indian. Um, uh, and, and when you listen to him, 
talk about and read the poetry. Um, I just encourage people to watch that video. I'll try to put it in the links because, you know, this is a guy who was one of the last great teachers of, of what we're talking about. And, um, and you know, somebody who, who protested the Vietnam War. I mean, because I remember him saying, because I saw him one of these protest readings against the war. You know, I remember him saying, but but that's, I'm a poet, so of course I should be here protesting this war. And I'm thinking of all these rock and roll bands and so-called radical artists, you know, rock for Ukraine, you know, <laughs> rock for NATO. I mean, that's how far things have crumbled. Um, it's just, I just fills me with despair. I don't know. Okay, um, final thoughts maybe from people, Hiroyuki? Well, I, I think uh, that, that's really depressing and I really feel it uh, being <laughs> in, in the uh, field of art. And, um, but it, it really, you know, if you step back and think about it, it really makes sense because we have social relations basically dictated by the uh, authoritarian structure capitalist uh, uh, framework. So yeah. we will have uh, stories and narratives and significant things that are within the framework. So this is really a tough situation. It, it, you, we even have problem talking about things because we don't stand on the same ground. So yeah, it's well, because a, language has been co-opted too. But right, right, right. It's very hard to talk right, about. Right, right. Yeah. It's very hard. Yeah, there are so many tools um, under the, uh, yeah, dictatorship of the uh, the ruling class. It's uh, the language is one of the thing that's domesticated to be uh, keep changing, uh, to be optimized, yeah. to be shaped. Yeah. Johan, final <laughs> thoughts. Yeah, this is a, a brief quote from uh, Antonio Gramsci from his uh, prison notebooks, where he talks about educating the, the working class. And it goes, um, but it, it is also true that it will always be an effort to learn physical self-discipline and self-control. The pupil has an effect to undergo a psychophysical training. Many people have to be persuaded that studying too is a job and a very tiring one with its own particular apprenticeship involving muscles and nerves as well as intellect. In the future, these questions may become extremely acute and it will be necessary to resist the tendency to render easy that which cannot become easy without being distorted. If our aim is to produce a new stratum of intellectuals, including those capable of the highest degree of competence, from a social group which has not traditionally developed the appropriate attitudes, then we have unprecedented difficulties to overcome. Indeed, I think we have. That's great. That's great. Um, last thoughts, um, Corey? Mm, I guess I would just add, I'll have more on this for the next podcast, but just there's this huge push on nuclear being part of the, you know, answer for you know climate emergency and how we have to now turn back our aging nuclear power plants that with the carbon capture storage just massive huge you know and again just like the jabs taking the money from the public treasuries from the taxpayer 
in um, giving it away to all these huge corporations, not to mention the fact that it shall and um, it is actually sharing it off it. Is, who is it? It's big oil. I'm not sure if it's Shell sharing the, an office building with like the COP28 this year. Um, I'll, I'll put a link on the article for that. But I mean, big oil is such a huge part of the quote unquote climate, you know, emergency, this fourth industrial revolution for quote unquote green energy. It's all the same companies, right? All the same oil yeah, companies yeah. behind yeah. it. And so it's just sort of, um, again, what, what, what if we had called it you know that like big the what is it green new deal the shell green new deal you know or whatever big oil green new deal <laughs> um yeah anyway i'm just sort of rambling about that but no, we'll have but more on that for the next great. next one yeah yeah no but it's but it but it's true i mean know your enemy convincing people that bill gates and 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 fauci and that gangster who runs the World Health Organization, Ethiopian assassin, <laughs> you know, recognize that these are bad people with bad intentions. King Charles is not an awkward, bumbling, old fuddy-duddy. He's a murderous, colonial, racist prick. I've said this before. He's a horrible human being. Um, people have to stop this, this kind of Pollyanna worldview. Know your enemy. Because they'll kill you. They want to kill you. Varun? I'll just add to Corey. Uh, I was going through some brief documents about the new budget that has been released by the central government for the next financial year. And um, they've hidden somewhere deep in the documents support for oil companies under <laughs> the green management, like the green greening of the country kind of mandate so it's it's kind of funny how that works but it's it's quite incredible what's happening i'll try I'll, i will try and find a link for that and send it okay um i i like ending with that gramsci quote um i'm just going to add that uh the 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 um stockholm conference those links will be added as they become available over the next few days um, eventually, probably by Monday or Tuesday, this is what, this is uh, Friday right now, um, it will all be complete and all be available on Rumble and probably a couple of other places as well. So um, uh, it, it, when this podcast is first posted on SoundCloud, not all of it will be available, but by Tuesday, I expect all of it will be. All right, I want to thank everybody, Cora Hiroyuki, Guru, Johan. Um, it was um, good to get back to doing this. And yeah. thank you all. And uh, thanks to Jack Littman, who will get this um, up and uh, uh, posted soon, I hope. All right, thank you all. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.